As you see on that outline there, there's a, there's a sentence just to introduce us, which I need not say, but this is our world today. This is probably your life. It's certainly mine. Life as we know it is overwhelming, it's full of fears, and it's measured in expiry dates. Life as we know it is often overwhelming, it's full of fears, and it is measured in expiry dates. Today, one of our leaders, it's his 30th birthday, and uh, he's feeling it because he's 30, right? And we get that. Now, 30 is pretty young, but we, we feel it on birthdays, we feel it when things happen in life, we feel those expiry dates, that life is shorter than what we planned for or, or felt it could be, and we miss out on perhaps much. Life is full of fears, our anxieties build for all sorts of reasons, and life can just be day-to-day overwhelming. There are some basics in life that we take for granted in our part of the world, like milk and bread. Milk and bread are staple in our part of the world here. Other parts of the world, it's other foodstuffs. It might be milk and rice, but here it's milk and bread. And when you think about milk and bread, the thing is that the milk and bread that we get from the supermarket comes with a tag that says, this has a shelf life. You may well know the experience of grabbing the milk from the fridge. And having to ponder, how long has it been there? Having to sniff and to to perhaps even taste. Because drinking off milk has that kind of look and smell about it that says that was a bad life decision. What about bread? My last name, Grinter, is an original old French name for keeper of the granary. We were farmers from the 12th century. We, We grew wheat, we made bread. I love bread. I'm told by my doctor and health professionals I need to not eat too much bread. There's always gauges and measures on that. But I love bread. And and the older I get, though, the wiser I have to be about bread. As a young guy, I used to go to find the bread. And I would often find that bread because we had loaves and loaves of it everywhere. And we'd, yeah, I'm going to eat that loaf of bread today. Uh, I'd often go to the bread and I'd find, oh, it's got a bit of green stuff on it. No worries. Just dust it off. Cut it out. And I would often do that until I got married. But I'd go and apply the Vegemite just the same because you can't really taste it. And after all, mould is actually just, as you know, fungi. It's fungus. And we eat mushrooms. And so it can't be that bad for you. It's just like eating mushrooms, isn't it? Some of you may be put off by all this talk about eating off food. But rightly so, it reminds us Life is like that. Life is full of expiry dates. We don't come with a tag on us, but we need to hear this from our maker and be reminded that life has expiry dates. Your life has a tag on it. I don't know the date, but we know there is a date, there is a time where life ends for us as we know it. And in between then and now, life can feel like one daily or weekly or monthly because it feels like with the life the way it is, the month is the new week. Just, it just accelerates, right? And, and it just feels like it can be overwhelming on a day-to-day basis. But then Jesus comes. Then Jesus comes and in John 6, he gives us a better offer. 
He speaks particularly about life, about life now and about life forever. And he gives us a better offer for those of us who just would take the time to hear. And he starts, we pick up the scene with a large crowd following him in John 6 verse 1. Jesus on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. It's a big lake. You'll see if you've got a Bible and a Bible map, you can actually see the Sea of Galilee. So it's, it's not the ocean, but it's a big lake. Perhaps uh, quite big enough, it's bigger than Epilogue, it's 12 kilometres by, it's, it's, it's a big lake, right? As Jesus is at the side of this lake, there's a large crowd following, verse 2, and why are they following him? Because they've seen him perform signs. And as they see him perform these signs, they follow him and he goes up the hill, he's on a mountain and he sits down with his disciples. Now the Apostle John who writes this account, he writes this kind of biography in this sense, as he writes this account, he, he says in verse 4, which is almost an aside, by the way, it's near the time of Passover. Which means, as we read through John's Gospel, this is the second Passover we've seen in a matter of chapters. It's been a year. Wow, time flew, hasn't it? Time has been flying, people are following Jesus, and he goes up onto a mountain. And when you're thinking Passover, when you're thinking Old Testament, you're thinking mountain, Passover, leader, crowd. You're probably joining the dots of things that happen in the Old Testament. As he goes up the mountain, Jesus lifts his eyes and he sees a crowd. And he says to one of his 12 disciples, or the closest, he says to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, Philip is perhaps like you and I. He sees the crowd. And we look at this crowd, there's, there's perhaps, it's 5,000 men, translators have us see. That could mean women and children as well. We could be talking about thousands, 12, 15, 20. This is a stadium of people. And Philip feels what you and I feel when we look at a crowd like that. And Philip sees them, but he misses seeing who's with him. He misses seeing who's standing here asking him the question. Philip is overwhelmed and he says in verse 7, hey, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough to even give them a little bit of a crumb. In your Bibles, you may well have a footnote that tells you the denarii calculation. Denarion, denarios. You may see there's a calculation there. To cut to the chase and to do the calculation for you, which I did, Philip is saying this. It would take eight months of wages to get enough food to give them a morsel. If that's a labourer's wage, today's equivalent, Philip is saying $32,000 we would be to feed these people even a handful of food that wouldn't fill them. Anyone got 32k around here? Right now, we can go to IGA. Philip is overwhelmed. But Philip is not seeing what we can see, friends. Look at verse 6. We have verse 6. We have the Bible. We have the narration, the event. and We have Jesus' words. Now look at verse 6. Jesus says this to Philip. Why? Because Jesus is throwing his hands in the air and he's not sure what to do. Now Jesus is saying this to Philip to test him, to see what he would do. Look at Philip. This is us. This is me. 
I often get so overwhelmed by the situation in front of me, by the circumstances that I seem to be stuck in, I miss who is with me. And I've got verse 6. I've got John 6 verse 6. Philip didn't have that yet. But I've got it right here. And just like overwhelmed Philip overlooks the situation that Jesus is with him, we can read this scene in scriptures and we can still miss the details of verse 6 and we so often miss who's with us. Now at the same time Philip says, we haven't got the resources, Jesus. Andrew chips in. Andrew's there and he's listening and, and Andrew wants to make a point. Andrew doesn't want to say, we've got nothing, right? But Andrew says this, verse 9. There is a boy who has five barley loaves and two fish. And Andrew's response is, but what are they for so many? Five loaves, two fish. What is Andrew saying? He has low-level exasperation. This is often what we have. Many of our moments, many of our days... Look, we don't have necessarily full-on fear every day. That is to come in the next scene, by the way, if we keep reading. But what we experience, what I notice in me, what I notice among us is this. When the strong winds blow, tomorrow we feel fear. Yet for many of us and for many of our days... We just look at what is before us in our household, in our work, in our wider family circumstances, in our friendships, in our neighbourhoods, even in the world with places like Ukraine. We look at our circumstances and we feel overwhelmed. And then... We get exasperated when we look at the resources that we seem to have or lack thereof. Our resources we can't seem to muster to meet the problems that we have. And it's at this point the disciples can't see the way ahead. And Jesus shows them a sign of who he is. Verse 10 following, Jesus has the people sit down. This is a famous scene. There's lots of grass. And as he sits down with the people, he gives thanks. This feels very much like the Lord's Supper that is to come. It fulfills the Passover of the past. Everyone is filled in this scene, every single person. And how do we know everyone's filled? Well, there's the best thing afterwards. What's the best things after a meal? Especially a meal that tastes good. Leftovers. There's leftovers. In fact, measured out leftovers... 12 baskets of leftovers. And if you're thinking Bible and you're thinking Bible framework, there are a couple of numbers in the scriptures that are significant. 12 tribes, 12 apostles. It's the number of fullness, completeness. And here is 12, 12 baskets of leftovers. It's amazing. It's a sign. Of who this is. Now at this point the people think they know who Jesus is. We see the sign, we see Jesus and now we know what we need. 
We are tired of the political establishment. We have shifted to the right or to the left or whatever it is. And now we know we need a political representative to fulfill our dreams and desires of taking over the joint. And so they take Jesus, or they want to take Jesus, and by force make him king. Yet, they don't see who he is. Jesus, perceiving this, withdraws again up the mountain by himself. You see, Jesus will be crowned as king. Jesus will be king. But he'll be crowned with a crown of thorns. Not by political campaign. He'll be crowned, yes, by force. Jesus will be made king by force. Ironically, though, it's because they're rejecting him by force. He's not made king because he gets a political staff and a chief of staff to give him the right campaign and the right words to say, that hits the sweet spot to win the crowd. He becomes king and thrown on a cross to die for their sins. His throne is made out of two logs strapped together. His coronation is a crucifixion. He will be made king by force. And he'll willingly go there as he stretches out his arms. Jesus is not your political pundit and he's not your political candidate. Jesus is not coming to coronate your particular prime minister nor president. Jesus is king of the universe. He has no interest in being king of your country by force. Not by your will nor his. Can we see what Jesus is teaching his disciples in this moment? You see, this is a test. The crowd often feel like they're testing Jesus, aren't they? Show us a sign. Do this. Do what we want you to do. You will be king our way. Come on, Jesus. You do what we want you to do. We decide, Jesus, what you will be like. We will tell you, God. Do you find that hubris just a little bit dismantling of understanding who God is? Jesus is not being tested. He's testing Philip. He's testing Andrew. He's testing you. He's testing me. The same test that came for Israel. Psalm 78, verse 19. They spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? Well, yes. Yes, he can. See, when we experience the stress of overwhelming circumstances, we feel under-resourced. We can either say, Jesus, this is impossible. We know better. We can tell Jesus we're not meeting budget. Better of the household or the church. And what we have, what is this for so many? To quote one of his disciples, to quote Andrew. We can tell Jesus what needs to happen as if he needed our advice. Or we could trust him. 
which is expressed in praying to him and saying, instead of, what is this for so many? Oh, Jesus, what are we going to see you do next? Jesus, how are you going to grow us in our faith in you now? How are you going to not just fill our stomachs, but fill our faith? This is how Jesus works. Christ cares for our needs. Christ works in our weakness. See, the gospel is upside down of what we think. The gospel is we bring our little, which is not much at all. In fact, all we bring is our need. The gospel is all we bring is our need with the open hands of faith and he gives us everything we need by his grace. What if our lack of resources meant we relied upon Christ in everything? Imagine that. What if we believed that not only do we not save ourselves, but we also don't sustain ourselves? What if we could see that Jesus is not stingy with us? And Jesus doesn't want our sinful and selfish desires and dreams to come true because he knows that's bad for us. It's like giving yesterday, last night, we thought, let's do something different. Let's go out for dinner. Went to a pub and we had dinner and the meal came with ice cream. We have three little children. That's like giving TNT to a child. Right? We thought, well, it should be okay. It was two scoops each. My goodness. The difficulty is, of course, they brought it out and showed them. So you couldn't, like, we couldn't stop them. I saw it coming. It's like, no. I wanted to stand in front of it. Do not do this. You shall not pass. And I was too late. The ice cream comes out. There's two, not just big scoops, with sprinkles. That's like TNT and... I said to Ames, oh boy, should we see if we can share it with them? She said, it's not going to work. And it didn't. And as predicted, almost to the clock, one hour later, tears everywhere. Bedtime disaster. Jesus does not want to give us all our sinful desires of two scoops of ice cream that's bad for us. He will fill our daily needs, our daily bread. But Jesus, and this is the first point we need to see, most of all wants to fill our faith. In him, our reliance upon him. And he does that by secondly coming to calm our fears. Because I think when it comes to the overwhelming day today, we say, well, thank you, Jesus. I got through today. It was tough, but you, you, know, you, you kind of fulfilled my need today. But I'm really freaking out about tomorrow because there's this thing or there's this conversation or there's this person or there is this overwhelming set of circumstances and I feel like my life is over. As evening comes, this is how Jesus' disciples feel. Uh, Jesus goes up the mountain, his disciples go down to the Sea of Galilee, and they get into a boat. These are seasoned fishermen, many of them. They're pilots of the sea. They're used to this. This is normal. 
everyday circumstances. But as you see in verses 17 to 18, as they go across that sea, and the Sea of Galilee is a famous lake for storms. The way the mountains rise around it and the way that creates the turbulence and moves the air, this is a place that becomes dangerous. And we see in verses 17 to 18, it's dark. The sea becomes rough and they are rowing against the wind. And getting to the other side is hard. Remember, it's only a few kilometres across, but getting across is hard going. Isn't that life? Life is often dark. Life is often rough. And getting where we want to get to is hard. And when we can't see the way ahead in a situation, we often, I often get uncomfortable and disorientated. And, and by the change in the rough circumstances that happen so quickly to me, it's like I get onto the lake of Tuesday and all of a sudden at the end of Tuesday, it's just, it's like, it's horrible already. I have a series of weeks where for some reason Thursday afternoon, things go bad Thursday afternoon. And it just like, the day gets rough, unpredictable. I've got no BOM app to predict my day, but it just, have you got days like that? Circumstances might be our health is affected. Our livelihood feels in danger. Our relationships, our, our just a general stability. We find life hard going. Some of us in this church are in situations in their workplace where I know, because I pastor you and I shepherd you and pray that I know you are afraid of going to the Tuesday morning staff meeting. Because you're going to get yelled at again. Because your boss is going to blame you for the problems. I know some of you go to work and put in 12-hour days, which seems like a thankless task, only to be wondering whether you'll still have a job next week. Some of you, you just struggle. My kids are... The age and the stage, I just don't, I'm, I'm overwhelmed with how to care for them and, and, and to help them. And I'm their parent. Some of us, it's our wider families. Mum and dad are estranged from us. We don't talk anymore. The conditions are rough, the days are dark, and we can't see the way ahead. And we are tempted in those moments. I am so tempted. Ask Amy. I am so tempted to give up. And we are tempted to wonder. I am tempted to wonder. And I preach this. Does Christ care? Has he left us? But of course the Lord Jesus does care and that's why we have this passage. That's why we have verse 19. See, they're about to give up. And remember the Apostle John who writes this account is in the boat. You imagine him writing this later. He's like, remember that time we were all about to give up. My arms were sore. I felt like I lost them and couldn't feel them. We were just about to give up. Remember that time and then we saw Jesus walking on the water Remember that? That's what they see. They, they immediately cry out in fear. 
They were frightened. In Matthew and Mark's gospel, we read the same account. They cry out and they say, it's a ghost. They're just, they're just freaking out. And here, their fear is calmed when they hear Jesus' words. He says to them, it is I, do not be afraid. And they were glad to take him into the boat. Now look at that, it is I. We read from Exodus 16 earlier. We always read an Old Testament passage as a cross-reference to our passage of the day. And in Exodus 16, in the book of Exodus, in Exodus 3, it is where God reveals himself to Moses in a burning bush that is not consumed and it burns and it is a special moment, particularly of special revelation. Because in that bush, God says to Moses, go and be my agent for rescuing people out of slavery in Egypt. And Moses is kind of like me. He's like, no, I can't do that. Send someone else. Not a good preacher. You know, there's others. Perhaps I'm, I'm kind of busy looking after my father-in-law's business and his sheep. Send someone else. And, and God has to really encourage him by revealing who he is. And God says in that moment, here's who's sending you. I am. It's, it's, it's a verb. It's an action. I exist. I will be who I will be. I am. We translate that Yahweh, that word. Here, Jesus is in the same word. I am. It is I. Jesus says, I am, throughout John's gospel. There are seven I am's in John's gospel. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door, the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth and the life. I am the true vine. And in these I am's, Jesus is saying this. You've heard of I am before. His name is Yahweh. It is me. It is Yahweh. It is the God who made the atoms, that makes the meniscus, that makes the water, the H2O. I put it all together and now I'm walking on it to you. Psalm 89 verse 9. Do you know these sort of verses to your heart, to calm your heart? You rule the raging sea. When the waves rise, you still them. Jesus speaks and he calms our fears. I know when I'm fearing, I don't need to hear more of me telling me how fearful I am. I don't need to have more of the circumstances and the situation replayed over and over again. You know what I need desperately in those moments is to hear Jesus speak to me and to hold those verses close to my heart and he says he is with me. It is I. I am here. Yes, it's rough. Yes, it's dark. Yes, you can't see the way ahead, but I can. Trust me. Jesus comes to strengthen our faith, calm our fears. And how does he do this?
across the lake. And when they get there, they go, what in the world? He's already here. And they say, how did you get here? And Jesus doesn't tell them that's the, well, the answer they want because it's not the answer they need. He says this, verse 26, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. See, whilst Jesus calms the heart and fears of his disciples, now he's coming for what really matters, our heart motivations. Why are you following Jesus? What is it you want out of Jesus? Jesus knows our hearts. He knows mine. He knows that we are bent out of shape by sin. That is a sickness that we can't go to the pharmacy or the doctor to get a prescription for. Which means if we're bent out of shape by sin, we err on the side of selfish. And we tend to trust in the stuff of life around us. Namely, if we find something that satisfies our fill and our need now, we'll fixate on that. And Jesus says in verse 27, don't work for stuff that perishes. Don't live for things that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. You can eat the bread that expires and goes mouldy. We can have the stuff of life that's never going to go off. Jesus says, pursue that. Now, at this point in time, Jesus says something that us humans with our works-based hearts pick up on. We love this sort of stuff. We hear Jesus say, don't work for the food that perishes, verse 27, but for the food that endures to eternal life. We go, thank you, Jesus, something to work for. Now my heart's right. I've got it. I know exactly what I need to do. You told me what I need to do. We love being told what to do. We need sermons where you tell me 10 things to do. Give me the stuff to do, and then I'll know what I need to do to impress God and get into heaven. Jesus knows what they're thinking. Do you notice that? In verse 27, there's a comma. But for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. So don't work for it. You turn and listen and focus on the one who gives you eternal life. Now they ask in verse 28, what must we do to do the works of God? We're still looking. Jesus, got 10 points for us. What do we need to do? And Jesus answers them again because they're just not getting it. We just don't get it. It's by grace, friends. Here it is, verse 29. This is the work of God. You believe him. You want to do something? Do what we all struggle with. What do we struggle with, friends? The biggest thing we struggle with is not necessarily just keeping Ten Commandments, although we struggle. The biggest thing we struggle with is not keeping the ten things the preacher said last week, although we will always struggle, particularly if there's ten. Come on. The thing we struggle with, that I struggle with, is believing in grace. Just believing it. Because my heart wants to go, no, really? Free? Grace? Given? Can't pay it back? Can't earn it? Don't deserve it? Yep. Would I believe it? I'm struggling with that. Really struggling. Believe it. 
that's what you need to do. <laughs> and then you've got verse 30. All right. They said to him, so what sign will you do um, that we may see and believe you? I mean, if this was a comedy show, right now, you'd just be kind of like, well, this is, it's almost hilarious instead of sad. Now, of course, Jesus has just done a sign. He's actually done a couple for those who are watching. And then they bring up, yeah, we've got some authority here on this subject. We know what signs look like. See, verse 31, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. That's Exodus 16. We want a sign like that. Have you got a sign like that? Is there some sort of way that you could just kind of like, we're hungry today. Is there some sort of way that you could just magically give us all the food we needed for lunch right now? We want to see, when we see that sign, then we'll believe. And all the people reading are going, uh, that's awkward. He just did that. Like, he literally just did that. Bread from heaven came to you. You, you ate it. There were leftovers. But you see what's really going on? They're not interested in one more sign. This is a symptom of their hearts, changing the subject, justifying their unbelief, staying in their pride. People love pride. We love our own pride. We entertain it and we stroke it. We talk to it. We inflate it. We blow it up. The problem with pride, it is like a balloon because the more it inflates, the thinner the walls of our life gets and then it bursts. We don't need more gluten. We need more of God. We need the bread of life. And that's what Jesus says. He says, friends, here's the point. Verse 32. Truly, truly, I say to you. Remember, Jesus is the only person that starts with amen, amen. Truly, truly. Truly, truly, I say to you. It wasn't Moses who gave you that bread. Verse 32. It was my Father in heaven. And the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives it to the world. And they say to him, sir, give us this bread always. Perhaps they're still caught up thinking it's physical bread. Nicodemus was caught up thinking it was literally being born again. The Samaritan woman was caught up thinking literally it was living water like H2O that she needed. Maybe they're literally thinking it's, it's glutinous bread. That's what they need. But Jesus is speaking about their spiritual need and here it is. It's sin and death. I grew up in the 90s. I started kind of doing what I do now in the sort of late 90s, early 2000s. And we were taught, I think this was right for the times, that we needed to constantly explain sin. In fact, I went to an atheist meeting once. It's a long story how I got there. But I was in an atheist meeting and someone worked out that I was a Christian because I was just having a chat with a whole bunch of people, atheists. And the kind of the lead speaker, MC, said, Hey, you. I'm just pointing to, that was me over there. They said, You. You talked about sin earlier. There's no such thing. See, back then we had to explain sin because it was just like, in the late 90s, early 2000s, we somehow believed, we started to believe as a society that we we're about to enter this utopia where there's no major wars. Not in our part of the world, at least. If we weren't paying attention, there were no major wars. 
Kosovo was happening, but we just, that wasn't us. Some sort of scramble between some ethnic groups. There was no major diseases, no major issues. Politics was like, eh, it was the Howard years. Things felt stable for those who liked him. For those who didn't, you could protest occasionally. But sin? What is sin? Now, I find I don't have to over-explain sin. You don't believe in sin? You don't watch the news. What we do to one another on a national and international scale, human evil is rip large. Not just rip large, we rip it. Airstrikes on maternity wards? Come on. And then there's our own nation. We can't coordinate a flood effort without blaming someone that it wasn't fast enough. And then there's our neighbours. We get on fairly well, we have niceties over dinner, and then we talk about each other behind closed doors to people who are not them. And then there's the stuff that just... Well, we'd rather have God for the good stuff we get, but we don't want God himself. Sin leads to stress and sorrowing in the world and suffering, but it leads most of all to death. It's the death of life in us. And it's death forever. And Jesus comes to change that. Jesus says to them in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. As Jesus says these words, again he uses that word, I am. Next week we're going to go deeper into what it means to feed on Jesus, to feed on the word of God, to to actually what it means to believe in the word of God. We're going to look at really more than Bible reading. Bible reading is good, but what does it mean to actually see the Bible and see it work deep in our hearts? We're going to look at what it means to not just have union with God, but communion with God and enjoy God. I think it's often our biggest problems. We just don't enjoy God. And for us, as Reformed folks, as Presbyterian folks, oh, we've got the doctrines right. We have the doctrines of grace. We just don't show grace to one another. We talk about enjoying God as the prime focus of humanity, the reason we exist. But do we? Do we worship Him with our lives? Come next week. We're going to go deep into this. For today, though, Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. This is where it starts. And where your life ends, Jesus has an offer for you. Do you want life forever? Our part of the world, here in Australia, here in Bendigo, we are so rich, we are so full, and yet we are the most unsatisfied generation who's probably clocked it up on social media And we ought to make sure we're not working for things that perish. But believing in and receiving the gift of eternal life in Jesus. There's so much meaning in the scenery of this episode, especially at the centre of the scene. Look at the scene here. It's near Passover, near the time where God's people remember their rescue, that exodus from Egypt, They were frightened on their journey. They went through the Red Sea. It was dark. It was stormy. It was rough. 
They could not see the way ahead. And there is this prophet, Moses, who teaches them on the mountain. And they grumble against Moses. And Moses, most of his ministry is just about the end of his tether. Can't do it anymore. He wants to give up. And he has to keep looking himself to the living God who constantly is gracious, who constantly provides for his people. And they're delivered. And they get bread from heaven. And Jesus says, all that is me for you. And he has come down. He says, look at verse 38. For I've come down from heaven, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. We often see salvation as we are the first recipients. Look at this. Jesus firstly receives us. And how much of us does he lose? All that's given to him? None. I was talking this morning before church started over coffee. Someone said, you often feel like you know, life can be a series of days where I just, you know, I fail and I lose my grip. You know what we need to hear? You know what we need to hear? He does not lose his grip on you. By grace you are saved, by grace you are held, by the grace, the grip of God. And Jesus will never cast you out. Why? Because he was cast out on the cross. He was cast out for you. His life expired so you get eternal life. He is the bread of life that perishes at the cross for you to rise again and be forever with him. You and I live in a same hungry, stormy, needy world. Life gets dark. Will you get through? Do you know where you're going? Jesus does. Could you listen to him and his word? Could you hold those verses together close to your heart? Your life is one moment of standing upon the brink of entering into eternity. My life is like that. It could change, couldn't it, in a moment? It could be a Thursday. It could be a news headline or news from a friend. It could be a doctor checkup on a Thursday morning that leads to a Thursday afternoon contemplating your eternity. Your life is that moment. It is that brief. And Jesus says, in all of that, believe in me. I am the bread of life. We can trust him. The disciples look around, don't they? in that moment and they measure what they had how much different would it be for us now to look around and instead of measuring what we have and don't have to lift our view and pray to the one who gives life would you like to do that let's pray our father in heaven Give us this bread always. Lord, we have heard you say just now that you should not lose one of us who are given to you. And so now we look to Christ and we believe in Christ and we thank you we have eternal life in Christ. And so we pray and say that we would help us, that we would show us, that we would Teach us that we would speak to us by your word that we would come and receive Christ. That we would 
hear his word and focus on him and worship him with our lives. And we ask this as we gratefully pray in Jesus' name. Amen.